Well, as we turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 35, continuing in this series that I've entitled Journeys with Jacob from Grasping to Leaning, we have in fact seen Jacob as his name Jacob demonstrates he was a grasper, a heel grabber, a clinger, a manipulator, one who liked to manage outcomes. And throughout his life, God is moving him in his character and his nature from grasping to leaning, where he's having to learn to lean, not control. He's having to learn to depend, not manage. And this morning in our passage particularly, we will see God move in his life in that way profoundly. I've entitled the message this morning, What Do I Do When I'm Backslidden? What do I do when I'm backslidden? Now, backslidden or backslide or backslider is not a word we hear real often in our modern 21st century church Christian world, but it is a word that was used quite frequently in previous generations. So let me explain the term to you, especially for those that may be somewhat unfamiliar with it. The word backslide implies movement away from Christ rather than toward him. A backslider is someone who is going the wrong way spiritually. He's regressing in a spiritual walk rather than progressing. The backslider has at one time demonstrated profound commitment to Christ, maintained a certain Uh, standard of devotion to Christ, but he has now since reverted to some old ways. Now, there are some in Christian circles and in certain denominations that consider the state of being backslidden to actually being that you've lost your salvation, that you've fallen away from the faith. But we know, based on the authority of God's Word, over and over and over again, a true believer in Christ cannot lose their salvation. Here's why. The Heavenly Father who adopts you as a child does not one day say, well, I'm unadopting you. And then you repent, oh, I'll adopt you back again. No, then I'm going to unadopt you. It's not this playful back and forth. No, God is a God who doesn't renege on his promises. God is a God who makes good on his covenants. So the question will arise from those who don't hold to what we refer to as once saved, always saved, or eternal security. Well, if you believe that you can't lose your salvation, if you truly believe in once saved, always saved, then how do you explain the worldliness among so many professing Christians? How do you explain the carnality that's prevalent in so many churches? And there's really uh, two responses to that question and i've been asked that question personally by someone the first response or first answer is this well they were never truly born again to begin with they may have given a mental assent to the facts surrounding the gospel they may have said yes i believe in the facts of who jesus is and what he's done they may have even had an emotional experience but there's been no genuine conversion there's been no regeneration by the spirit of god from death to life So they were never truly born again to begin with. The other aspect or the other answer to that question is they are, in fact, in a backslidden condition. They are a child of God, but they're walking out of fellowship with God. Now, if you're here this morning and you fall into either of those two categories, one, maybe you've given a mental assent to the truths of the gospel and who Jesus is, but you've never been truly born again. Or if you know that you know that you know you are a genuine 
Christian, this message is for you. If you are a Christian and your devotion to Christ, the fire of your devotion has gone down to just a smoldering ember, here's been my prayer uh, this weekend, that the Holy Spirit would use these truths to blow on that smoldering ember, to fan into flame your heart of affection for Christ, your Savior. So how do you know if you're backslidden? How do you know? A very simple test. Are you as spiritually strong now as you've ever been? Are you as close to Jesus as you've ever been? If your answer is no to either of those questions, then at least to some degree, you have backslidden. Now, some may be here and you are seriously backslidden, significantly removed to a, from a previous commitment you have had for Christ. Others may not think, well, I'm not that far away, but maybe you're trending in that direction. The reality of the matter is either you're progressing forward in your walk with Jesus or you're regressing backward. There's no middle ground. So whatever category you may fall into, this message is for you. It's for us. So with that as an introduction, let's read our focal text this morning from Genesis chapter 35. We'll read the first 15 verses of that chapter. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you, your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Now, in case you've not been with us in our study in our journeys with Jacob, and particularly as we've been here in the last few weeks at looking at Jacob's life, let me remind you or tell you of the context of this passage. 
Jacob is here on the heels of really his greatest failures as a father, his greatest failure as the spiritual leader of his household. If you'll remember, when God told Jacob to come back into the promised land, he obeyed God with this kind of half-hearted obedience. He came back to Canaan, he came back to the promised land, and he settled in the place called Shechem. He actually bought a piece of property, he put down roots. And the problem with that was, it was half-hearted obedience. You see, because God had called him to come back to Bethel. Yes, he was technically in the promised land, but he wasn't at Bethel. He wanted to maintain one foot in the world and one foot in the land of promise. And it was because of that compromising, it was because of that capitulation to the world and this apparent lack of concern for God's word that he really didn't concern himself with the protection of his only daughter, Dinah. If you were here with us last week, you remember that tragic story of how his 15-year-old daughter goes out into the city, and she's unaccompanied, she's unchaperoned, she's just doing who knows what with who knows where, and in the process of prowling about in the city, she is sexually assaulted. She's raped. And when word gets back to Jacob, his response is really something of an unmoved nonchalance response. Well, this prompted his sons, Dinah's brothers, to take the lead in the retaliation. And so they go and they execute this disproportionate vengeance and retaliation on the the people of Shechem. They killed every male in the city of Shechem. They took the women and the children hostage as slaves and prisoners. They ransacked the place and burned it to the ground and looted their possessions and brought them with them. So Jacob's half-hearted, halfway obedience resulted in the defilement of his daughter, the desecration of the sacred sign of the covenant, circumcision, and the degradation of his sons as they executed this malicious massacre on the Shechemites. All of that taken together. Jacob confesses at the end of chapter 34, I've become a stench among the Canaanites. This is the chosen family. This is the people of God. This is the line through whom Messiah would come. But friends, like Jacob and his family, we are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Like Jacob, we are prone to half-hearted obedience. Like Jacob, we are prone to travel to Shechem, but not all the way to Bethel. Prone to leave one foot in the world while trying to maintain one foot in the land of promise. So what are we to do as we become spiritually lazy? What are we to do when we're backslidden? That's my question. What do I do when I'm backslidden? I want us to see six things from this passage that point us to a response. The first thing I want us to see is this. Number one, a gracious invitation. There is at the very beginning of chapter 35, after all that happens in chapter 34, this gracious invitation. Again, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. He says, This is the place you belong, Jacob. You're supposed to go back to Bethel. This is the place where you vowed to live, where you vowed to be. I've brought you back safely to Canaan. Now go to Bethel. What is it about Bethel? Bethel was the place that God had first appeared to Jacob. Bethel is the place where 
30 years earlier as he's running from his brother Esau. He went as far as his tired legs would take him. And he, in exhaustion, he falls down. He takes a stone. And he sets it, up, sets it up as a pillow. And he falls to sleep there. And God meets him there in a dream and speaks to him and gives him a vision of this angel freighted ladder with angels going up and down from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. And there God pronounces his protection and his promise over him. Bethel is the place, listen, where Jacob... The homeless vagabond who is running from the consequences of his own sin met God. Can you relate? Do you remember when you were spiritually a homeless vagabond and you were running from the consequences of your own sin and there God met you? It's Bethel. Bethel means house, Bethel or dwelling place of El, of God. And there, God gave you a purpose. He gave you a vision. He gave you a new heart, a future, and a hope. No doubt, with the crisis at Shechem, Jacob thought he had destroyed every opportunity to be used by God. You ever been there? Because of decisions? Because of sin? I've blown it. I've destroyed every opportunity to ever be used by God. But God comes with a gracious invitation. He calls you back to Bethel. God says, arise. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there. Interestingly, this is the first and only time in the book of Genesis when God commands one of his servants to build an altar. Now, there's lots of altars in Genesis. If you remember back in the first part of Genesis, after the flood, Noah, after he disembarks from the ark, the first thing he does is he builds an altar and he sacrifices an animal, one of the animals that was on the ark. And he worships God there at that altar. But God didn't tell him to build that altar. You move up to Abraham and Abraham chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, after he's called by God, he makes it to the promised land. And there, when he arrives, because of the promise being fulfilled, he builds an altar and he worships God. And when he finally lands in the, by the oaks of Mamre and settles there, again, Abraham builds an altar. Isaac builds an altar. Even Jacob, we saw a couple of weeks ago, he built an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, an altar of worship to God. But all those altars were simply human responses to God being true to his promises. But here, God commands an altar. It's as if God is saying to Jacob, listen, you need to go to Bethel and renew your vows. You go to Bethel and you recommit your life. It's not just a command. It is a loving invitation to fellowship with God. And the invitation was to go up to Bethel. This is not just a geographical reality. Yes, Bethel was a thousand feet higher in elevation than Shechem. This is a spiritual reality. In a spiritual sense, arise, Jacob, from your attitude of compromise. Go up to the highlands of obedience, to the highlands of faithfulness and fellowship and communion with your Creator. Friends, this is the invitation for us today. It's an invitation to go up to Bethel, to go up to meet with God, to go up to the highlands of fellowship and communion with God, to come and Pour oil on the rock of dedication. God still issues that gracious 
invitation today. He's issuing it right now. Arise. Go up to Bethel. And that's what the first thing for a backslidden person is. Recognize this gracious invitation to go back to Bethel. Here's the second truth I want us to see this morning. Number two, a repentant restoration. There's a repented restoration. Jacob understands clearly going from Shechem to Bethel is so much more than just traveling X number of miles. It's so much more than just going to a particular place. He knows very well in order to go from Shechem to Bethel, there must be some serious spring cleaning that takes place in his life and in the life of his family. That's what God calls us to as well. It's not simply to go to a church service to go to a revival, to go to some spiritual high at a youth camp. It's to go and meet with God and to repent. That's the word, repent. Jacob realizes if he's going to go to Bethel, it's going to require some serious change. And so notice the instruction he gives to his family. Verse 2 and 3 says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. Do you remember what his beloved wife, Rachel, had done 10 years earlier when they fled Mesopotamia? When they left the home of her father, Laban, she stole some of the household gods. And as Laban pursues them and he finds them and catches up with them, he goes on a rampage looking at every tent, tossing them all, looking for these household gods, these little 12-inch statues, these idols. He goes into Rachel's tent, and she's sitting on them. And she says, I don't know where they are, Dad. He doesn't find them. Well, that's been 10 years now. And there's nothing in the subsequent chapters of Genesis that tells us that Jacob has implored her to get rid of these idols. They've been traveling around with these idols, with these false gods, these good luck charms for the better part of 10 years. Further, think about the son's of Jacob as they ransacked Shechem, as they took the spoils of war into the camp. Surely they brought in all the golden trinkets and the earrings that were representative of the false worship and idolatry in the land. And so here, Jacob comes to his family and he says, these things cannot continue to be in our household if we're going to pursue communion and fellowship with God. So by doing this spring cleaning, he says these gods have got to go. It can no longer be tolerated. God is doing something amazing here in Jacob. He's moving him to authentic repentance. And as a result, he's taking the spiritual leadership of his family seriously. He's not an absentee father anymore. All the superstitious statues, all the good luck charms they've collected, the idols they plundered in Shechem, they all must go. And I wonder this morning, what false gods have we allowed into our household? What idols have we erected in our homes? What is an idol? Anything we love more than Jesus. Anything that attracts our attention or our affection away from a pure affection for the Lord. If you've never denied yourself of something, if you've never removed something because it was hindering your relationship with God, it's likely you're not a Christian. Because the consistent work 
of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to seek out these things and to remove them. That's what God does. Christians know what it means to bury their idols under the terebinth tree, to dig a hole and cover them up with dirt. And that leads right to the third thing. We see this repentance in their lives because of number three, a wholehearted consecration. A wholehearted consecration. Notice the response of Jacob's family. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Do you know what this tells me? Because this family shows what it seems to be immediate obedience to what Jacob says, they were desperate for spiritual leadership in the family. And as soon as Jacob begins to show this type of courage to lead his family, they respond willingly. Yes, we will give you these foreign gods. They obey all that he's instructed them to do. You remember the three things we just read about he instructed them to do? Put away the foreign gods, purify yourselves, and change your garments. His family, particularly his sons, had contaminated themselves through the massacre of the Shechemites. Likely, the clothes they were wearing were still stained with the blood of those they'd killed with the sword. And he says, change your garments. Change your clothes. Further, as I mentioned, these Shechemite gods were likely spoils of war. Now, this changing of the clothes... It's a symbolic reminder of transformation that happens. This changing of an outfit. The New Testament uses this metaphor often. Let me show you a few examples. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In Romans 13, Paul says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And the Apostle Peter comes in and echoes what Paul says. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The symbolism here is is obvious. We put on these new garments, we put on these new clothes because they demonstrate a change in our lives, a change in our allegiance to God. We're a new people, we're a restored people. And so the Bethel call to us today is this. Come, put away the idols, wash yourselves, be clean, and change your clothes. The communion with God that we seek, that's promised with the call to go up to Bethel, cannot be fully realized until there is this kind of wholehearted consecration to the Lord. And as we continue through the passage, we see this fourth thing. Number four, a miraculous preservation. There's number four, a miraculous preservation. Now, the last time we saw Jacob, last week in chapter 34, Jacob and his family were in deep trouble. Jacob's main concern at the end of chapter 34 was that his name and his reputation would be sullied among the peoples of the land and that his son's retaliation would actually cause them great harm. In fact, notice what the Bible says in verse 30 of the previous chapter. Jacob says, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. This was a legitimate concern 
Now, they'd wiped out all the men of the Shechemites, but there were other cities, other villages, other tribes, and Jacob has a legitimate fear. What if these tribes hear about what we've done? They all get together, and they decide in this tribal warfare to attack us. We don't have the military presence. We don't have the numbers. We don't have the people to defend such an attack. And this command from God to go up to Bethel from Shechem would mean they would walk right through in a vulnerable way those villages, those cities, those tribes he was worried about would attack and conquer them. They're like sitting ducks. And this call from God could have been answered by Jacob with the all-too-familiar response that we've used. Oh, God, the timing's not right right now. I know you've called me here to do this, but, but let's just let the, the anger and the hostility of our neighbors and those tribes just kind of settle down a little bit. I, I, I'm not quite uh, militarized enough to move through those places. Let me do this first, God. Then I'll obey you. Have you ever responded to God's call like that? God's clearly called you to do something or to go somewhere And your response was, well, the timing's not right. Let me first graduate from college. Let me first finish my graduate degree. Let me get established in my career. First, Lord, let's let's get, I mean, we're married. Let us get our marriage established first. And, oh, God, uh, we just need to get our kids out of diapers and get a little bit more breathing room in our schedule. Lord, let's just get them launched out of the house. There's always something. God says, go up now. To Bethel. Don't wait. And notice the promise that comes and is fulfilled in verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Friends, this is nothing less than the miraculous preservation of God because God's people were obedient to his call. Now, it's hard to interpret exactly what this terror from God is. Was it a mysterious panic that fell upon all the people in all the villages and towns surrounding them? Could be. Or it could be the very angel of the Lord going before them. God had promised the angel of God would go before Jacob. Maybe as they walked through and marched through every city, that angel went before them and they saw the angel and there was a terror struck upon them. Whether God sent an angel or not, we don't really know. But what we do know is that God supernaturally preserved his people. And I know this too. Friends, listen. God will supernaturally preserve you when you walk in obedience to him. They were too afraid to take up weapons against Jacob and his people. Now, this doesn't mean that Jacob will never have any trouble again. We'll see next week, Lord willing. He will experience the consequences and the residuals of his past mistakes and failures in his family. But in the long run, obeying God will never harm us to follow him in a particular way. You'll see the dangers, for sure. You'll see the potential for embarrassment and the hardships and difficulties that abound. It seems intimidating, but let this truth comfort you. His angel will go before you. A true believer is someone who does experience that even when passing through the midst of the Canaanites, we have peace of God because we have the preservation and the protection of God. I've said this to you before, but it certainly bears repeating. The child of God is invincible in this world until God is done with you. Invincible. 
Your peers may assail you. Your enemies may assault you. But God will preserve you. Which leads right to the fifth truth from the passage I want us to see. Number five, a worshipful adoration. Verse seven of the text says, And there, Bethel, he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So now here we are, 30 years later, and Jacob finally fulfills the vow he had made earlier that he would come back to this place and that he would show his commitment to God. He'd, he'd taken this stone that was a pillow and turned it into a pillar and he'd poured oil on it and he worshiped God as a reminder and as a testimony of God's powerful visitation in that place. And do you notice what he named the place here 30 years later? Previously, he called it Bethel, which I told you means dwelling place or house of God. Here he calls it, 30 years later, El Bethel. El, short for Elohim. It means God of the dwelling place of God. Well, what's the significance? See, 30 years previously, he was concerned about the place. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I'm not going to forget this place. But now 30 years later, after all of his failures and errors, he's not pursuing a place. He's pursuing a person. He says, no, this is El Bethel, the God of the dwelling place of God. What he's impressed with is God. God is elevating him to this higher spiritual plane. It's not just an experience. And we've all had experiences I know uh, back last fall when I went to Florida and I went into the very church house where I was born again and I performed a funeral for a family friend, I sat on the back pew to remember the place God first intersected my life with His grace. But friends, it's not about that place. It's about a person. The person who intersected this sinner's life. And that's exactly what Jacob experiences here. El Bethel, the God of the dwelling place of God. There's a strong implication that we can see here as well when we interpret this passage with our New Testament glasses on. As we interpret the old through the lens of the new. See, every time in the Old Testament there's an altar, it's a picture, it's a portrayal, it's a foreshadowing of a future sacred altar. Every altar, the altar Noah built, Abraham built, and Isaac built, and Jacob built, all of them were places of sacrifice. They were places where an animal was killed, slaughtered, bled, and the blood rolled down that altar, the blood. All of those altars throughout the Old Testament were pointing forward to another bloody altar, the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, as we come back to God, as we respond to our backslidden condition, we are coming back to and through Calvary. We come back through the cross of Jesus. He is the one who has made a way. When we come back to God in worshipful adoration, we are coming and we are taking refuge under the canopy of His sacrifice on our behalf. El Bethel, the the God of of the dwelling place of God. That is Jesus. He's the God of our dwelling place. And that leads really to the sixth thing I want us to consider. God responds wonderfully to Jacob's 
worshipful adoration with a confirming revelation. A confirming revelation. Again, the text says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. God repeats to Jacob the promises that he had made before 30 years earlier in this same place. Interestingly, this is the last direct revelation from God to one of his followers in the book of Genesis. From here on, God speaks to his people in different ways, primarily through dreams to Joseph. It's like this here. All the promises God had spoken to the patriarchs, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, they're all brought together in this one place at this one time. And it would do us well to remember this blessing that God gives to Jacob here. As God confirms these promises, he, in verse 10, reminds Jacob, Jacob, do you remember... I changed your name earlier. You keep going by Jacob, the grasper, the manipulator, the wrestler. You're no longer Jacob. You're Israel. You have a new identity. And this is what God speaks over to us as well. As we keep falling back into those old habit patterns and flesh patterns, you have a new identity. You have a new name and glory. Next, God reminds him that he is, in fact, El Shaddai. It's translated in our English Bibles, God Almighty. God first revealed this personal name, El Shaddai, to Abraham all the way back in chapter 17. In chapter 17, that's where God establishes the sign of circumcision, and he reveals himself to Abraham as God Almighty, El Shaddai, the all-sufficient, all-powerful one. And Abraham's response, he falls flat on his face and worships. If you'll remember, whenever... Isaac had stolen the blessing from, or excuse me, Jacob had stolen the blessing from his father, Isaac. After that all goes down, Isaac then gives him a legitimate blessing before sending him off to Laban. And in that legitimate blessing, his father Isaac calls upon the name of El Shaddai, God Almighty. And all that's the history of that name. And now here, 30 years after fleeing, he's back at Bethel, and God says, I am El Shaddai. I'm the all-powerful one. I'm the mighty one. I'm the one that's mightier than your sin, Jacob. I'm the one that's mightier than your son's sins. Then he repeats to Jacob the creation ordinance, be fruitful and multiply, and he begins to create the promises that came through the the covenant. You will have a place, a land. You will have a people, and you will have descendants. Kings will come from you. All the promises that have come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now spoken over him again in spite of his failures, in spite of his mistakes and missteps. God brings this relationship and this revelation. And you may be here this morning, friends, and say, you know what? I think God's put me on a shelf. No, he hasn't. He's not done with you. God will come through his revelation and speak to you again of his promises and of your usefulness in his kingdom. Why? Why would God do that with broken vessels like you and me? Here's why. God is a God who keeps his covenants. This is how the psalmist put it in Psalm 89. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. In Jesus, God has spoken a covenant over your life. 
And this revelation strengthened Jacob for the rest of his days. You fast forward in the book of Genesis all the way from here, chapter 35 to chapter 48, which will be in in about 10 or 12 weeks. There is Jacob, and he's laying on his deathbed. And as he's dying, he gives some blessings to his sons. And he speaks to his beloved son, Joseph, the vice regent of all of Egypt. What does he say to Joseph in chapter 48, verse 3? And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz, that's Bethel, in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Friends, for the last years of his life, this direct revelation from God is what propelled him forward in his obedience to the Lord. It was this blessing at Bethel, this forgiveness at Bethel, this demonstration of God's amazing grace that propelled him in his life of faithfulness. And so as we close today, I've got a question for you. It's a question that's the title of my message. What do I do when I'm backslidden? What do I do? Well, let me just review the six things we looked at from the text. First, we realize God still issues a gracious invitation. Isn't that amazing? God still invites us to fellowship with him in spite of us, to meet with us there, to commune with us. And we come to him, secondly, with this repentant restoration, confessing our sins and our failures, seeking his forgiveness. Third, we see the authenticity of that repentance with this wholehearted consecration. We remove the idols and purge those things from our lives and put on new garments. In the New Testament, James says, faith without works is dead. It's useless. Next, we trust in God's miraculous preservation. Though the decisions we make as a sold-out follower of Christ will no doubt bring reprisals from those within our spheres of relationships, God is with you. God will keep you. Five, we respond to those promises with worshipful adoration. We worship Him. We don't have to build a physical altar. And that's one of the reasons I don't call this an altar. This is not an altar. These are steps in our sanctuary. The only altar we come to is the altar of the cross. We come to Jesus because that is where the final sacrifice has been made on our behalf. We come to him. And finally, we trust in God's confirming revelation. Now, I seriously doubt that God will come and speak to you audibly. But that does not mean he does not bring you his revelation. This is the complete and total revelation of God. This is the inerrant revelation. So as we pursue Christ in faithfulness, as we remove ourselves from this backslidden condition, friends, we must depend upon the revelation of God that he's given to us. It's all of grace. All six of these things are all of grace. Repeated grace even in spite of our repeated failures. And this God of grace, he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our affection. My Jesus, I love thee. And that leads to my last thought. So long as we are alive, there is always a way back to God in and through Jesus Christ.